thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Please speak to us this morning. Pour out your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, you can take a seat. I feel like we've already had our sermon from Ian and Kathy to be selfless and to be kind. I feel like that's all we need for this morning. But I will press on. Um, when I was in year seven, my older brother, who was in year 10, said that he had a secret he wanted to tell me. He said he had a crush on a girl named Adele. Being the younger, giggly sister, I just this was the most amazing news I could ever hear from my brother. And he told me that he was going to ask Adele to the year 10 formal. He'd started walking home with Adele and he had decided that tomorrow was the day he was going to make his move. And so you can imagine the next day I rushed home from school. I ran up the stairs into my brother's bedroom, flung open the door. How did it go? What did she say? This was the most exciting thing that had probably happened in my young life. My brother, Andrew, just looked a little bit downcast. I said, oh, no. Did she say no? He said, no. I didn't even get a chance to ask her. He said, I got held up at school, and by the time I got to the top driveway, she had already walked home. He said, not to worry. I've still got tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be the day. So the next day, once again, I rushed home from school, ran up the stairs, flung open the door. Andrew, how did it go? But this time... He looked even sadder. I said, oh, no. She actually did say no. He said, no. He said, by the time I got up to the top of the driveway, she was there, but she was talking to another guy. And this guy, James, asked her to the year 10 formal before I could. Poor Andrew. He just had to walk home sullen. He never told Adele he was going to ask her. This other guy had come in and cut his grass. He was devastated and I felt devastated for him. Fortunately, it does have a happy ending. Andrew and Adele, my brother, have now been married for 17 years. <laughs> they have three kids. I hope James is happily married as well, but um, Andrew won out on that one. But the reason I tell that story is that from the very beginning to the end of God's word, it's a story of God pursuing his people, regardless of the obstacles, regardless of our rejection, regardless of our pursuit of other guys, of other gods, regardless of other people asking us to the year 10 formal, God pursues his people. And we're right in the middle of the series that is focusing on Ephesians, build my church, Jesus says. And we are going to get to Ephesians, but before we get there, I want to take us on a little bit of a journey of God's pursuit of his people. It's going to feel like a bit of a plane ride where you're kind of taking off and you're not quite sure where you're going. Then you're going to settle in and get comfortable, but then there might be some turbulence, there might be some packaged meals along the way. But trust me, I am going to land the plane. So keep strapped in, stay with me as we journey through the Bible and have a look at God's pursuit of his people. Because we sung tonight, pour out your spirit, and God wants to pour out his spirit. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to fill us with his glory. And the Bible is the story of how he tries to do that. So right at the beginning in Genesis, we have a picture of God dwelling with his people. 
God is in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. My kids love using FaceTime. My husband often travels and both the grandparents live a fair way away. So we are always using FaceTime. They love talking on the phone on FaceTime. They haven't quite understood when you call someone, you can't see them. They love using FaceTime, but nothing compares to having someone in the room with you. Nothing compares to opening the door to a loved one and giving them a hug or seeing their emotions and their reactions in real life. And that was what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden with God. He was with them. He dwelt with them. His glory was beside them. But as we know, that picture was soon destroyed. Adam and Eve disobeyed the one command that God had given them. And because God is holy and they were not, he had to cast them out of the garden. Genesis tells us that he put an arrow, an arrow, an angel at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve could no longer enter. But God, like my brother, does not give up in his pursuit. So fast forward hundreds of years later, and the people of God have now exploded from just two to over 200,000, many more. And they are now wandering around in the desert. You will all remember the story, the Israelites, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and they were crying out to God to come and rescue them. God heard their cries and so he called Moses and his brother Aaron to set his people free. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh kept saying no. God sent the plagues until finally Pharaoh said, get out of here, leave. And so God's people left Egypt They went out into the desert in pursuit of the promised land. They went into the Red Sea when they were being pursued by the Egyptian army. The Bible tells us that God opened up the Red Sea for them to walk through. And as soon as the last Israelite stepped foot on the shore of the other side, the waves crashed down on top of the Egyptian army that were pursuing them. But in that moment, as God's people were wandering around the desert, heading towards the promised land... God wanted to once again dwell with them. He says in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 to Moses, you can put it on the screen. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. God is telling Moses, I want to dwell with you. I want to connect with you. I want to fill you with my glory. I want it to be like it was in the Garden of Eden. But now God is holy and they are not. And so God sets up a way for him to be able to connect with his people. He gives Moses pages and pages and pages of instructions, of measurements and materials and logistical management in how to build this tabernacle. This sanctuary that means holy place, this place where God can come and meet with his people. If you're doing the Bible in a year, you will know those sections that is very tempting to skip over because it's talking about the lampsland and the gold and the wood and all of these details and how to build this portable tabernacle. But fast forward and Moses does exactly what God asks him to do. It says in the very last chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, 
Moses finished the work. He built this portable holy place. And it says in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So because Moses did everything that the Lord asked him to do, God was able to dwell with his people. The glory came down so that Moses could not even stand near this tabernacle. The glory filled the sanctuary. God was able to once again dwell with his people. But fast forward another few hundred of years. This tabernacle was never a long-term strategy. Finally, the God's people arrive at the promised land. They stop wandering in the desert. And so now is the time for them to set up a permanent structure. God tells King David that Solomon is the one who is going to build his house. So God says to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house, he says, that you are building... If you will walk in my statutes, obey my rules and keep all my commandments, I will dwell, there's that word, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Once again, God is telling Solomon, if you do what I ask, I will come and dwell with you. I will set up this piece of this garden of Eden where I will come into the temple and connect and dwell and be with my people. And so Solomon does exactly what he's asked to do. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8 that Solomon finished the work. And in verse 10, it says, When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So once again, God has commanded his people, build me a tabernacle, build me a temple. And when they do what he asks, the glory of the Lord comes and fills it up. But in the same way that the Garden of Eden was destroyed, so too this magnificent temple that Solomon had built in all of the gold and glory, all of the lampstands, all of the pillars, all of its magnificence, it didn't take long for it to be destroyed. Only a few chapters later, we're told that Solomon was led away by his wives who worshipped foreign gods. And later on in 2 Kings, we're told that the temple is destroyed, completely demolished to the ground. And so when we get to the end of the Old Testament, we have to ask, will God be able to dwell with his people? In fact, Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, asked that same question. He says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And that is the question that we need to be asking. How can a holy, righteous, good, sovereign, powerful God dwell with an unholy people? A people who keep falling over and failing and not following the commands that God has asked us to do. And God himself is soon going to answer that question. 
fast forward to the Gospel of John. It's been 400 years since God's people have heard from him. There have been no prophets, no word of God, no operating temple. God has not visited his people in fire or clouds or the Holy Spirit filling the temple with glory. There's been silence. There's been despair. That question has been ringing in their ears. Will God dwell with his people again? And then this guy, John, appears in the desert. He eats grasshoppers and honey and looks very disheveled. But he's going around talking about the Messiah. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, this is what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How was God going to solve this problem that he is holy and we are not, but he wants to dwell with us? He wants to pursue his people? He was going to send his very own son. And that word dwelt among us, in, it literally means pitched his tent. It means tabernacled among us. What John is saying is that the same way that God filled up the tabernacle with his glory, the same way that he dwelt in the temple in the promised land, now that glory and that dwelling of God is in Jesus Christ. And he walks among us. Colossians tells us that all the fullness of God's deity dwells in Jesus Christ. God is no longer filling up a holy place. He's no longer filling up a building. He's no longer filling up a sanctuary made of gold or bronze or silver. He is filling up his very own son who dwells and lives among us. But just like Adam and Eve destroyed the Garden of Eden... Just like Solomon and his people destroyed the temple because of their disobedience, so too we destroyed the temple of Jesus Christ. It says in John 2, when Jesus is in the temple, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. For he was speaking about the temple of his body. When Jesus walked on earth, he was the full indwelling of God. But when he got taken to the cross and crucified, it was the ultimate destruction of the temple. It was the ultimate demolishing of God's indwelling spirit on the earth. But of course, we know that's not the end of the story because again and again, as we demolish and we destroy, God keeps rebuilding. And even though the temple and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was killed on a cross, though he was perfect, God raised him from the dead. Now you're all thinking, when on earth are we going to get to Ephesians? Now, I'm landing the plane now. See, we no longer have Jesus walking around next to us. He is not physically sitting in a pew next to you. He is not physically feeding the 5,000 anymore. He is not physically healing the blind. So how does God dwell on earth now? 
It's no longer in a tabernacle. It's no longer in the Garden of Eden. It's no longer in a physical temple. It is no longer in the body form of Jesus Christ. Where does God now dwell on earth? He dwells in us. He dwells in the church. Ephesians 2, let me run to it, says, In him you, say you, you also are being built together, listen to this, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is not filling up the holy place of the temple. He's not filling up the Garden of Eden. He's not even filling up the physical body of Jesus Christ. Who is he filling up? He's filling up us. We get to be the temple. We get to be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. At the very end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for the people of God and he says, may they be filled with all the fullness of God. When the people of the Lord watched the glory of the Lord come into the temple, they fell down in awe and worship. We don't get to see the fire and the glory and the cloud of heaven come down onto a temple or a building anymore. We get to be filled with that glory ourselves. We get to be the vessels that God fills up with all of his glory, all of his magnificence, all of his beauty and power. See, the church is not powerful because of us. The church is not beautiful because of a magnificent structure. The church is powerful and beautiful and the only hope of the world because it's the indwelling of the Spirit. We are the structure where the Spirit dwells. And the only reason that God came and fell on the tabernacle, the only reason God came and fell on the temple, the only reason that he was able to dwell in the Garden of Eden was because of the people's obedience. The Bible again and again says they did exactly as he commanded. And so he dwelt with his people. But God no longer dwells because of our obedience. If he did, we would be dead. Aaron's sons, the very first priests that were instated in the tabernacle, were killed because they broke the rules. No, God dwells in us because of the obedience of his son. The track record has already been set. The life has already been lived. The perfect obedience has already been done. And so now, because we stand in that obedience, Christ can dwell in us. See, that verse in Ephesians 2, verse 22 says, In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's only in him. It's not by anything that we could do. It's not by our following of the commands. It's in Jesus that we become this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so now as the church, let's be a conduit for that spirit. Let's be a flow, overflow of the spirit that lives in us. And let's praise God that we get to be the ones that he comes and dwells in. I just loved singing Pour Out Your Spirit this morning. I hadn't even asked or known that that song was going to be playing. But I thought, well, the only way that God can pour out his spirit is because Jesus has gone before us and lived the perfect life so that God can live within us. And so now the church, we get to be built up together as the household of Christ with the spirit living within us and the best part of this story is that one day we will have the full face-to-face experience with God 
There'll be no more FaceTime. There will be no more falling over. There will be no more destruction of the temple. There will be no more half attempts. We will be with God in all of his glory. And what's wonderful about Paul's prayer for his people is that he's saying this is a work in progress. You are being filled. Every day we're being filled more and more with the fullness of God. It might feel sometimes like we get poured out a bit or as Ben said last week, the the dirt comes, the manure comes and dirties up our water. But we continue being filled with the fresh spirit and one day there will be no more need for filling because we will be filled to the brim and overflowing And God in all of his glory will be before all of his people. And all we will do all day is stand in awe and worship of his magnificence and his beauty as the church of God is fully joined together, built up in Christ, living stones, united with Christ in the presence of God forever. And that picture that God set up at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden and journeyed through all of the Bible, this pursuit of his people, will find its full, full, full completion when we stand with Christ in heaven, in the Garden of Eden, in a paradise that we can't imagine, and the Spirit will overflow through all of us. So let me praise God for his gift to us this morning. Oh God, we just, we do, we praise you. We lift up your name today. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that though we are empty, dirty vessels, Lord God, that you fill us up with your living water. You do pour out your spirit to us. Lord, fill us up with all the fullness of God that we may have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge and again be filled with all the fullness of you. Lord, in whatever we're facing this week, may we know that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So therefore, it's not what we do It's not our power to overcome sin. It's not our boldness to speak truth. It's not within us, God, to do what you ask of us. It's the spirit within us. Make us alive in your spirit today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.